This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to this week's episode of the 2023 Seaweed Spotlight Series. We are happy to be doing this again. Thank you to Seaweed for this opportunity. This week's episode is with Greg Johnsman, owner of Marsh Hen Mills, also the co-owner of Miller's All Day, one of our favorite restaurants in the low country. Correct. And if uh, if you're interested in anything about corn, how it makes its way into restaurants, and that whole field-to-table business, this is the episode for you. You're not going to want to miss it. Literally, from grits to distilling. That's right. So, enjoy. Thanks for listening. Marshhead Mill. <laughs> glad to have you here. I'm glad to be here. Never really done this before. Well, that's the cool part about podcasts is usually most people haven't done one, and we always get excited to uh, to be the first. It's it's just a conversation. We just have a good time and talk. And I know that you've got we get people on here, and then they get all nervous and stuff. And it's like there's nobody here, there's nobody listening. It's just us. So just enjoy it. And yeah, a lot of podcasts are very. Uh like TV media interview, you know, formatted. And we just, we just want to have a conversation. Yep. So just chatting. So where do we start on Marsh? Have you been there? Do you want to talk about what it used to be called? Are we past that? No, I mean, it, it, it's not a bad effect or whatever. I think it's good for uh, listeners to understand um, who I am or maybe who my family is and what's going on. But, um, um, I'm uh, 44 years old and um, saw a beautiful girl in uh, college, and um, I was working on my undergrad, and um, when I met her, I convinced a professor that I knew enough to get a graduate degree, and it's not that um, I have any intellectual properties that somebody cared about. It's just I saw something that I wanted and um, stayed for a graduate degree, and somewhere in the process, I was able to court her and get a second piece of paper, but... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, that paper didn't do much, but um, I have it. But um, 
I got out of graduate school in um, 2001 and pretty hard job environment. And um, when I'd put in for jobs, I was having to take my graduate degree off because people thought I knew something. And um, finally, your dad said, that's enough. Um, come work on the family farm. And um, he owned a tomato farm here in the low country of South Carolina. And um, what's interesting, there's about 57 tomato farms at one time. Kiwa, Seabrook, which we don't even understand was a farming community, is completely gone. And now there's no commercial tomato farms in this area. There's a couple down in Beaufort, Bluffton, 6Ls. And um, uh, there's also um, the Sanders brothers, and they have a pretty good operation. And they've expanded into doing um, for seaweed and other things. You're, you're going to see their products. They, they've expanded into a cannery so they can have Bloody Mary mix and all. So they're taking their products. We were suffering as a tomato farm to keep going, and they figured out a way to keep the tomato farm going. Meaning when you ship tomatoes, you're only shipping pinks or greens. You're not shipping reds because they're going to die mm-hmm. before they make. And they found a way to take all their red tomatoes and make a product, which is awesome. Smart. So kind of fast forward um, in the tomato business, I'm working for him and trying to do stuff. And on the property, he bought a uh, another packaging shed on Edisto Island that Mr. Raymond Tumbleston owned before. And from a trademark, he named it the Geechee Boy. And um, there was a little farmer's market on the front where they sold the red tomatoes because, again, it was waste. And then as I started into my own venture, meaning I started working with chefs and selling fresh vegetables and heirloom vegetables and did that about the last— um, I guess we started about 18 years ago and um, started selling. I'm not a smart man. The the building was painted with Geechee Boy on the side, and, and when he bought it, the name came with it, so we continued the name. Uh, there was no thought process into it or where what dynamic it came with, so we left it there. And um, I did a, um, a couple, couple small storms affected me in the aspect. People are asking, who is the Geechee Boy? I'm like, well, I'm not him. It's just the name of the business. And um, I don't think I took into the effect of um, who it could affect and, and people and what it meant to people. So there there's sides to it. But what came down to is during COVID, we went through a large, um, many large companies went through um, names that people didn't think were appropriate. And, um, you know, it it was hard because we put so much as a family into creating that business and growing the business and going nationwide. So we, as tomatoes were going out, I started milling at night. I had an old friend, I'm from the upstate of South Carolina, that taught me to mill. And um, through the process of milling, um, I used that trade name to get it out there. And we went from just selling to Charleston to being very fortunate to sell it to most of the states in the United States. And people started questioning why I would use that name. And, um, you know, we, we had a chance to reflect and it was hard at first, but on the other side of the coin, where we're at now, we're so excited to be Marsh Hen. Why Marsh Hen? You know, well, I studied birds in college. My wife's family's big into hunting and kind of doing the environment. And the the click, the clacking, the clipping, the noise that most people don't know kind of uh, introduces you to low country. If you know the bird, the mud chick, and it, it hides. You don't see them, but they're there. They're present. And um, Psalm 91.4 for us is we're under the wing of God. And when I was going through the hard time of with my wife and her sister and family trying to figure out what to do, it was so natural for us to kind of fall on that. But the the bigger thing that people need to know is Geechee Boy was never my legacy. It was never my family. It was never our legacy. So I want people to know that 
we didn't name it after my last name, which is Johnson, because people say Johnson and get confused. And maybe one day, just like the tomato farm is not going to be around or someone else, I trained a mill or it's passed on. It doesn't need to be my last name. So it was it was important to us to to um, give the history of the low country, who we are and kind of explain that. And um I'm excited. I'm excited that people can finally see and make the connection of what's important to us as farmers. And um, I have a lot of respect for a lot of people, and I wanted to do the right thing by a lot of people. So, you know, it's a long answer. It's a short answer. Nothing's perfect. But I know that we've made the decision as a family to do the right thing and what we think is best for who we are and to display our products. Our products are all heirloom grains, and we want to make sure that we're telling the history and the, and being part of history. There was many men and women before us that had good stories and bad stories. And for us, it's it's just adding our our take or point on it. For sure. Sorry to start with that. I just, I've heard so many, uh, you know, rumors about it. And it's like, I think it was important to come straight from the source on what it was. And um, so I appreciate you explaining it. Well, I, I don't know if I did it. No, you did it. <laughs> I don't know if I did it justice. But like I said, you know, um, I'm fortunate enough with seaweed. Um, so people here, Emily Maggot, um, I'm cooking, um, with her as the farmer partner for, uh, Miss Emily Maggot. Miss Emily Maggot cooked at the Dodge Plantation for 45 years. Miss Emily Maggot, uh, just released a cookbook called the Gullah Geechee Cookbook. Um, believe it or not, her, I might be getting this a little bit wrong, but her grandfather and my wife's great grandfather is the same man, you know, from same. So we are as a family connected but um, experiencing someone with with the ability of what she's taught me to love and to understand what's important and and to give her a chance to tell her story is more important. And I'm excited for seaweed for people that come down and see her. She's going to be doing our Carolina gold rice and uh, sea on red peas in a very traditional dish. Um, there's uh, different ways of just rice and peas have a lot of meeting, especially around New Year's. And um, I'm excited to work with her at Siwi, especially being her daughter actually um, has been with me longer than any employee over the years um, through growing vegetables, running a farmer's market, milling. Um, she's been my right hand for so many years. She calls me her, her, um, her second husband. So um, <laughs> nice. she's she's been with us. But it's exciting to work with these people and learn. And, and um, to take a quick sidebar, the cooking that Miss Emily does is so difficult because it's so simple, and and people might think it's easy, but to make a roux, um, a gravy, that is basically just the rendering of some onions, a little bit of bacon fat, and a little bit of flour, and make it work. I wish I could do it. I've watched this lady do it so many times, and she's hit my hand with a spoon, and it doesn't help. <laughs> it doesn't help me. It doesn't help her. But like, I don't know how you make such a simple biscuit so good or or rue so good and her shrimp and grits follow suit so i've been excited over the years to try to learn some of this but i don't know if i've actually captured it so i try to use my end to just start with the base product give it to her and then see what we can do and you're huge in the food industry we were talking a little bit earlier about um some of your involvement with the michelin and james beard and all this stuff like you you supply all over the country right we do and you know i'm very excited that like i don't know if i'm um uh, I have an attention deficit disorder or, or I have an obsession compulsive disorder. But when I get 
deep into it. That's the problem. I, I just keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. So the chefs over the years have challenged us with so many amazing problems or try to explain stuff to me. I mean, the first time I see a chef taking my uh, brand and they are they are using it to preserve. And I'm like, I don't understand what you're doing. They're like, well, in Japan, there's a dry preserving. I'm like, I don't understand. And then they show me or we're collecting persimmons left over from old farms that we're caretaking for. And they're showing us how they're like physically hand massaging them. But in return, it's, it's, it's turning to pure sugar. These are things that just watching, they kind of show us little things. And then in return, um, we get to see, you know, there's a lot of Appalachia style stuff, uh, greasy beans, which aren't so common here on the coast. Greasy beans are just what they are. It's a real greasy bean, but you, um, make leather britches out of it. You physically hmm. string them up. You physically dry them. You know, it's like an old kind of popcorn looking thing for Christmas, but like change the whole flavor profile. It's like the beef jerky of, uh, of beans and stuff. But to see some of these different practices and looking at restoring stuff, um, it's so interesting to me. So it's a constant conversation. It's a constant challenge in techniques and thoughts. And um, my biggest downfall y'all need to hear which created a lot of who we are as Marsh Hen is for years. I'd have chefs ask me to come in, please come in, come, come eat, come eat. I'm like, I don't have time. I, 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 I work for my follow. Um, I have a family that my wife is doing 99.999% of all that work and all this stuff's going on. I don't have time to drive from Edisto back into Charleston or wherever, you know, to sit for a tasting menu to have one little scoop of something. But what I was missing is the most important thing people need to hear is when they would ask us to pick a squash a certain size, when they'd ask us to mill grits a certain size or all this, you until you understand what the dish is and until you understand you, the flavor and, and what they're trying to do, how you eat with your eyes, all that, you don't get it. And I still don't have enough time to see everything, but I have a, a little bit more knowledge now. But there is a, um, there's just a, an amazing kind of symphony there that I finally have, kind of understood and I have the lingo or the understanding of the passion to talk to some of these chefs that I can try to get 1% of what they're up to, to try to start understanding why we're growing a certain way. And then I try to pass it on. I was telling you all before that we did it all as a family before, and I just can't do it. Um, we had, we had three, almost four years of hurricanes that knocked out 60, 70, almost 80% of the crop. So now we use a whole group of farmers, try to help them keep their farm going, but it helps us. But long story short, I, now I have to pass that knowledge on of why I need it grown a certain way and how it helps the next person. That's awesome. Yeah, I like the the story of it. I like that. I'm really interested on the milling side of it. Do you you do it like in a newer way or do you have, because you see driving around John's Island, you see those old grist millstones everywhere. Right. Is, is Did you learn on that style technology or, or it's all modernized? No, no nothing modernized. Um, we use all stone mills for the most part. Um, you know, a lot of what's funny about John's Island when you say that is just a terrible, maybe correction is most of them aren't millstones. Most of those are sharpening stones. Oh. Um, so sharpening stones don't have the lands and all. It's, it's just a big sandstone that was for doing plowshares and a fun, terrible history fact about John's Island is like we, we dream of we dream of farming about sea island cotton we dream of indigo we dream about carolina gold 
rice. But what's hilarious is the largest crops grown in that area. Even tomatoes was a short-lived crop. It was into late 90s, early 2000s, and it was gone. But believe it or not, the two largest crops that came from the Sea Islands was Irish potatoes and um, cabbage plants. Maggot was a cabbage capital of the world because we were shipping them out all over the world. That's why the postal is so big in Maggot. But Irish potatoes were dug and shipped for for different years, and it's not anymore. But we don't. There's no rom- romantic story about an Irish potato. Um, indigo is short lived. Cotton, sea island cotton was amazing. I have so many amazing stories from landowners that we believe that they would tear down their own house in a short period of time. Sea island cotton because they saw they needed more land, and um, it was so short lived and all, but. But the most stones you're talking about would have been more of a plow sharpening because for potatoes and all. But but there are mills. There's less here on the coast because we don't have the water power back in the day because we don't have fresh water and all. Makes you go up into like Virginia, it's insane to see the amount of grist mills. And, and, and I've had a chance. I've got to work a lot. And that's who taught me. But um, what what we're trying to do is it's not that we're trying to keep history alive is what we've learned is. The men and women before us knew what to do. We just have to actually hold hands with them again. And so what I'm getting at is, is that the the slower process is keeping the oils and sugars in the best state. And that's what we're trying to do. So what modernization we've done is Charleston is the best market and the best group of people to get the word out. But it is the worst spot to be a miller, meaning we are using all the old tomato coolers. And we've actually added a couple more to climate control. So all our mills are in climate control buildings. We're, we're cold milling on top of cold milling. We're, we're doing humidity control. So the whole idea is, is if these farmers, group of farmers that are growing for us, have done everything in their power to do the best product, then I have to do the best to see it through. So again, any bit of heat we uh, put into the product will kill the natural oils and sugars. You know, white is higher in sugar, uh, yellow is higher in oil. Don't get that mistaken that one is sweeter than the other. It just is kind of the composition. Then there's different layers of flint corn versus a dent corn is what we mill. Um, you're not going to mill a sweet corn. You're, you're going to have mush. I mean, I don't know if everybody knows there's different uh, popcorns, another class. There's a flower corn. There's another, all these are different groups of corns, modern kind of feed corns. Um, so we, we mill different kinds of corns, but Denton Flint is what we typically stay in for the different kind of milling corns we're at. Interesting. The, um, and you do a lot with the ancient grains still too. And the term ancient grains, does that just mean like old world grains, like you would say with wine, or is it like a preservative grain? Yeah, I mean, ancient is definitely what the word means. I mean, heirloom gets very confusing if we're going to start. I really am not a definition guy, but like some of the some of the crops my father-in-law grew um, is considered heirloom. And I mean, they're not numbered varieties, but I wouldn't call them a very old crop when they were just grown, you know, in the... Um, into the 50s, 60s, into the 70s, how much, which is funny because if people do their quick research on sweet corn, sweet corn really didn't even start to late 30s, 1940s when we think of where corns are. I mean, um, most of the heirloom southern corns we're working with milling are like 1870, 1890. The oldest corn we've had a chance to work with is just recently um, a grower in Columbia, South Carolina has been growing it. And we finally got it to pass all inspections, meaning aflatoxin level is something that can make people sick. So if you have dry climates and stuff, we check all this. And if it's not good, we're not going to mill it. But um, he had a corn out of northern Italy that he grew here. It's a red corn. It's a flint corn. Uh, Florentine, Florinata, however you want to say it, Rosa just means red. But um, 
Uh, it's a flint corn, but um, it comes out of anywhere from the 14, 1500s. Mm. Um, and flavor profile is absolutely amazing. We've got a flint corn out of Cuba somewhere in the 1500s called Guinea Flint. Um, it's a, it isn't a typical crop. Um, it's, it's called a um, backyard crop or it's called a hill crop, meaning that it was grown more in um, vegetable or garden style, not large crops. So we had to learn how to grow that one. But we have a following for that corn. It's one, it's one of my favorite. It's the stovetop stuffing of uh, corns. It has this robust, just doesn't cream, real toothy, an amazing flavor profile. And that's what that's what we're at. I think I, if if I can pass one thing on for people thinking, if people think I'm dumb, they can. But like I've turned into a flavor seeker. That is that is where we're at now. It's like if that flavor of it is not different, then why are we growing it? Like I'm looking for definite flavor profile. So pink, we have a unicorn, and everybody's like, you did it for little girls. Be honest. Again, I've, I've told y'all we're not very smart people. So. Unicorn started as we had one cob of corn, so it's called unicorn. I mean, it was it was it was not a a brilliant thought process. It was um, is where we came up with a name. Sea Island Blue has its floral flavor. Um, blue corns were ceremonial corns, and it has roots into Native Americans. We're not sure where it falls, and it's hard because the traditional ones are very dry that come out of New Mexico and stuff. Um, in and this is a true Southern corn, and then. Jimmy Red has this amazing backstory and into distilling and folklore into what it is. But uh, flavor profile is very nutty to me. Uh, Sean Brock called it banana Laffy Taffy. And honestly, when it's milling, you can like think there's banana Laffy Taffy in the room. Um, Each one again. So if I introduce a new corn and it's the same color as the other, if it doesn't have a, a different flavor profile, what's the point? So there's hundreds of thousands of varieties of whites and yellows out there, and there's great stories. I've, Manning Farmer just passed. Um, his daddy saved Cox Prolific. I got a chance to meet Manning and actually get the corn. And David Shields and somebody before me worked so hard to date it, make sure it's real. And we worked through all these people to make sure it's the real thing. But the stories are amazing. I mean, I have, you know, 40 different corn stories on amazing people and saving and, 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 but then I have 2000 stories of people bringing me corn that aren't real. You know, they <laughs> think the family has the last of something and then you have to be the one to tell them, I'm sorry that, that, that collard or that corn is not what you think it is. I know your family's kept it for two generations, but it's X, Y, and Z. And how are they keeping it for that? Just uh, replanting in their freezers. Oh, I see. And, and again, just because your family's had it, you know, you think it's the only one and, and, you don't really want to be that person, but it, it is part of it is trying to figure out if it is something different. So, um, I've had more failures than, um, than anything on some of these corn glass gems, my biggest failure glass gem is most beautiful corn. It looks like a stained glass window. And I got so excited thinking, you know, I'm going to have this amazing colored grits and first the color doesn't transfer. And then second, the flavor was probably the worst flavored, uh, grits of all time, but, but you don't know it until you go through the whole process. So I wanted to touch back on the Jimmy Red. So we had some experience with Jimmy Red corn yeah. and he was the story that was, I'm not going to say who, but the story that was given to us was that it was, it was <coughs> out of Mexico and brought here and revived by people like Sean Brock, Clemson University. And we kind of chatted about it a little bit earlier. And that's, that's not the case, right? It's no, no. And, and my story hopefully will get people to think about a lot. And this is, I didn't know it until the story of my father-in-law. And others gave to me, and and it will it will kind of explain itself. So first, um, red corn has a parent 
called Appalachian red. That from from history, that would be the southern name of red corns. And then from there, Bloody Butcher and Jimmy Red came off of the name Jimmy Red also is derived kind of jokingly about James Island and John's Island. So Jim Island, there was actually a milling uh, Rothlandberg had a Jim Island bag back in the day, which was funny, but it was, that's kind of where the Jimmy did. It, it does have the oil from the yellow undertone of being this amazing, amazing distilling corn. So that, that part of the story is a hundred percent real in there. People need to understand what is a Southern corn. And I didn't understand this until it happened to me. So a Southern corn there's going to be regional corns that grow effective heights, how many ears it sets, what it, it what characteristics to know if it was from this area. And my story is my father-in-law had, as a tomato farmer, he had a lot of uh, workers come from all over during picking season because it's all hand labor. And this man named Cornelio came with his prized ear of corn from Mexico. And I've never seen anything this large before. I mean, this, this, it, Take two ears of your favorite longest corn and stick them, glue them together, and that's about how long this thing was. So I'm thinking, with the family, this is going to be the most amazing thing. It's going to be the most uh, productive ear of corn, all this. And Cornelia was not a very tall man, you know, barely five feet or whatever, you know, and and he was saying it in 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 the language barrier that he put his hand up about my height, saying that's about as tall as it grows. So, so he's telling me it's a short stalk and it's going to set the ears. It's hardy, meaning that when – we're not going to have it blowing over. And I'm thinking, man, this is awesome. Just everything he's saying is what I want. Most amazing white corn. So my family grows it. And um, by mid-season, it's twice as tall as what he said. You know, instead of six feet tall, it's almost 10, 12 feet tall. And no ear of corn. And then it continues. And it's like, okay, what's going on here? And how much nitrogen may we put too much and all this stuff? And it just keeps growing. It keeps growing. And my fall-off in the back to – when they grew, it was laughing, but not saying anything. And that's the man he was. And, and it was awesome. Uh, I lost him to COVID and amazing encyclopedia to this low country on farming. And he, and he started growing during 4-H. So he had a lot of experience, but he didn't want to say anything. He wanted us to figure it out. So long story short, some of the years people, uh, the listeners are not going to believe this, but we're talking 16, 18 foot stock. Um, no, no, no cob of corn anywhere to be seen. So finally they tell me, Greg, um, it won't grow here. I'm like, I don't understand. They're like, it's daylight sensitive. It's where you're related on the equator. So you have to begin to think of those two simple things nobody wanted to tell me is the story. So the length of day, that corn just stretched and stretched and stretched. It had too much sunlight. It didn't have everything right. You know, tomatoes relating in a different crop when the nighttime temperature is in the right, and when it drops down low is where the sugar content comes up in that tomato. It's not what the sun's doing during the day. It's what the temperature at night in that recipe. So corn was being affected the same way, and no one told me this. So that kind of proves where Jimmy Red was in this southern area. I Ted Shooting was uh, fortunate enough that I read the story about Jimmy Red. I was really just getting into milling some specialty corns. I already knew how to mill corn. I just didn't know about the local heirloom corns. True story. I asked my father in law, I said, This Ted Shooting guy I keep reading about has corn. And we sit in church in this little church uh, on John's Island near Wamalaw, where my wife grew up, and everybody sits in the same seats. And and I said, There's a Ted Shooting that sits behind us. So I turned around to church and said, Are you the Ted Shooting I keep reading about about his corn? He said, I am. And he said, Are you the Greg that, you know, is 
growing and milling. I said, I am. So then he shows up and gives me one of his ears of corn. About the same time, he gives one to Sean Brock. So we had one of the three original ears of corn from a man that was growing it out very um, primitive. All his He was not growing it to mill. He was just growing it to keep the seed stock alive because he's a seedsman. And I thought to myself, what's the point of growing it if you don't know what it tastes like? That was my whole point of what I, I'm only after taste. I'm a flavor seeker. So until I tasted, what's the point? So we worked pretty hard just to get, I mean, y'all don't understand when you're, when you're looking at a, a thing of corn, I was saying before, if you get one cob of corn, it's four or five years before you even get a chance to really taste it. And people are like, I don't, you don't have an option. It's you're, you're not a farmer at that point. You're just a seedsman trying to save the seed and replant the seed to get enough. And you've got losses between animals and between bad genetics and all that. So you finally get past that point. You're at about a six or seven before you actually know if it's something. And then you have to make the decision to go all in. And so Jimmy Red, we went through that process. And we got to about year seven. And I went to Sean Brock and I said, dude, I got it. Like, I, I know I, the flavor's there. I know what to do. I, my followers knows how to grow it. Like, I need help. And he's like, what do you need? I was like, I need all your seed stock. And he's like, you're insane. And I was like, <laughs> yes, I am, but I need it. And 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 this is why. And he he kept a little teeny baggie, and we took everything from what he grew when he was growing and what I, and we, we dumped it all in the ground and made it work. And um, it wasn't me. It was many, many people and many years of, trials to get at that point, but so exciting to help save that seed. But a flavor profile and what Cornelia showed us shows me that it's not from Mexico. It's definitely a Southern crop. I've heard stories from Georgia, Alabama. I do not think it's from Charleston. Charleston did not probably have it here, but it is definitely a Southern crop. And um, it's, um, it's, it's at its ebbs and flows of when people get excited about it. We're actually um, going to have it with um, Highwire and other people um, Moonshiners just came through and did a whole story. So it'll be coming out hopefully on Discovery Channel, just kind of the history and the folklore of Jimmy Red, which is exciting that people get to kind of get this regional corn and get a little bit more into it. I mean, y'all might be able to talk about it, but like Highwire has really put their hat on it and really champion help it going and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, uh, we, it seems like pretty much constantly we, because we pretty, busy in the bourbon world, but I see all the time somebody else has gotten their hands on a Jimmy red corn yeah. whiskey or bourbon or white dog. And, and they're going, they're going through the paces of explaining how much they like it. And then the, the nuttiness flavor comes out in it, which is crazy that it's like, you can smell it. Can you smell it during milling? Oh yeah. yeah. It's, 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 if you're blindfolded or you're blind and you come in milling that day, that one, that one is the most aromatic, uh, of the group. I mean, We've had to relearn how to mill Jimmy Red. So red is in the brand layer and you lose it and you want it out because it's not palatable to everybody. So we work so hard to reincorporate enough of the brand into it. So it's palatable, but you get to see some of the beauty again into the corn and stuff. So it's it's a little bit different. Our little tricks on what we do and how we set the stones up in the separators and how much airflow we're doing. Again, um, I can I can get real um uh, kind of nerdy on what we do, but again, it's all on humidity and it's temperature. And we're trying to figure out ways on how to keep the temperature down and how to keep the product flowing. Because again, the farmers, everybody before us did so much to keep that flavor that it's my job to see it through. Um, the farmers too, we do our own kind of um, drying down process because people don't realize in our climate right now, we're going through a rainy season. Our, our harvest season is not much different. And 
we have to dry, use dryers to dry it down so we can get it out of the field quick enough. But then that ruins the germination. So then we have to leave enough to hand break for seed for the next year and stuff. And we've been through some hard years where it's, it felt like almost extinction of the um, strain that we're keeping alive. And I think the biggest question people call me all the time is I want to buy some of your seed. And I was like, nope, I don't do that. I'm not, I'm not a seedsman. I've worked too hard on this strain. And it's important for people to hear that it's not that I, it's trying to be greedy and try to keep some. It's that like we've kept it in this climate. We, it's a land race. You know, we've kept it in this climate and it's changed to what we've done. And I want to keep that strain alive for what we have. There's other people that you can buy a seed from and I'm not looking to sell seed and I'm not look I'm I'm looking to try to preserve it so I can get it back on the table and get it back in a glass for people to have. And and that's my objective. It, it is a totally different person that gets into saving seed and that's not who I am. I mean, again, I want I want you to have a memory of you know, sitting at your grandma's table or um whatever, but it, it's it's memory driven for us and what we're trying to preserve. That's interesting. The the way that you Said that. So that's the reason that it takes so long because the first seed plant that wasn't made to grow here. So some survived, some didn't. And then you have to continue to provide or preserve the ones that did survive. Yeah. I mean, and again, there's, there's so many things that I have some knowledge of, but probably not enough to talk about this, but it's like um, Guinea Flint. I saw it really quick. So all the corn we see typically today where the ears are set, that is not where corn originated, where we see the tassel at the top of the stalk, you'll see diversions in some of these heirloom, early heirlooms where they'll grow kernels of corn up in there. And, and that's okay. where corn originated. Corn did not originate where we have the yeah. ears set low, what we're used to. And I have a couple of pictures, guinea flint, I've seen it. But what's interesting and what I love is when you start planting, when people say they have this or that, is um, the plants don't lie. You know, genetic defects show up, I mean, and they start to show you. So one of the coolest things about Jimmy Red that people don't know is Jimmy Yellow. And um, I spent many years on Jimmy Yellow, and Jimmy Yellow is just what it is. Is So you literally can have anywhere from like uh, 30% to 20% of all your red crop in a yellow ear. And hmm. the yellow ear is a genetic defect to Jimmy Red. So what that means is if you walk down a row, you know, out of 10, you could have two ears that are completely yellow. There's no red on it at all. So I got excited. So I took the yellow and we hand broke it and I put it in a separate field so it couldn't be cross-pollinated. And I'm like, I'm going to make Jimmy yellow. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, the exciting thing there is to say about the genetic defect is we kept the yellow separate, kept it away from everything, had about five acres when, when the whole season was done. It went back to 80% red and 20% yellow. So that recessive gene does not carry itself through. Like it's there and it's not. So we still couldn't create Jimmy yellow. Like we thought we could do that. Um, The unicorn, the blue are genetic defects. And what that means is it's not a defect that's bad is when you take a whole in heirloom varieties and you take a whole Southern variety of white corn occasionally 
out of say a hundred, a thousand ears, you'll have one blue kernel in the white. And in yellow, you'll occasionally have a one out of a whole cob of corn, you'll have one or two kernels of red. So over time, someone began to save the red, which is a light red, which is pink. And they started saving the blue uh, recessive gene. And then it was able to keep that receptor gene separate and it actually began to make an all blue and all red ear of corn. And that, that's where those come from. It's a recessive gene that actually could be uh, kept separate. And a lot of people don't know that. So the cool thing about the unicorn in the blue is you can use acidity. Chemistry person told me for, um, and it brings the color out because of that genetic defect. So you can get the pink, real vibrant pink, and the blue, vibrant, almost Viking purple, and it's just based on acidity. Lemon, lime juice, of course, buttermilk works, but not as good. But again, that's the traits. They don't lie. They, As we get to see the crops grow, they start to show us stuff. Now, with all those good traits, there's 10,000 bad traits we don't like. You know, blowing over, um, they don't have um, that lodging is what we call it. Just they don't have the root strength and stuff. So um our yields are pathetic on all this stuff. So it's important to me to give farmers a financial reward for the hard work. So this is the easiest way to tell everybody. A bushel of corn is 56 pounds. That's what we're basing off of when we talk about a bushel in corn. There's different uh, measurements for different crops. So you got 56 pounds. A good uh, commercial grower should be well over 300 bushels to the acre. So 300 times 56 is an average. Last year, the record, there's corn competitions across the nation on a new commercial variety. Somebody was well over 600 bushels to the acre. Wow. On an average crop of these heirloom corns, it's the most pathetic thing to say, but we hope for about 70 bushels to the acre. Wow. We've seen as high as about 150, and we've seen as low guinea flint sometimes as 25 bushels to the acre. So- you have to you you have to reward people for the problems, but you also have to understand, and it takes the same amount of nitrogen and all the other things to make this grow. So it's not like, well, I grow less. I don't have to put so much in the soil. So, you know, that is why the cost is more for these crops. I would love to have a 600 bushel uh, crop of Jimmy Red per acre. That ain't ever going to happen. Yeah. Uh, that's never going to happen. So it, it's, it's trying to work through some of this misnomers and try to understand, you know, why we do what we do. But Again, I'll walk away from Jimmy Red when you find me a 600 bushel thing of corn that has the same flavor profile. But yeah. I, I challenge you to find that. And I, you're not going to find it. Right. And that's the flavor seeker part of it. Right. It, I, have, uh, yeah. I know you, I wrote some stuff down I wanted to ask. You were talking earlier about the process. You know, you you separated that Jimmy, that yellow, right? And you, you planted it separately. It still turned out. 80% red when it grew. Is there, can you do lab testing? Could, could a lab or chemist or, or someone test at a genetic level like you can animals or humans to, t to find out what those, you know, recessive or dominant traits are? Or is it just not cost effective? Or is it, how does that work? Well, I, I believe anything's possible. I mean, this world's creating, you know, <laughs> so much stuff, but I don't think any of us have thought that far into the thought process of, um, you know, we, we get people to come forward and scientists to help preserve it. You know, I've been fortunate enough with a slow food movement that we've actually got. It's so cool to say, like, we've got about six or seven varieties that we've actually got some of these seed in vaults, mm -hmm. you know, in case, like, the world dies. That, like, it's pretty cool that we're involved in a project that, like, some of the seed might outlast anybody in my family. I don't know if that's a good or bad thing to say, but, you know, it's um, it's exciting to be part of that. But I don't 
we haven't really had anybody explore because nobody even really cares that there's been a Jimmy Yellow that, yeah. you know, it was just something my father-in-law and me were looking at. And I was like, well, dang, if we grow this yellow, we could have this whole different uh, market that nobody's even seen before. So that's about as far as it went. But we just thought it was hilarious that that at the end of the year, you know, we pick it because it's all in a, it's all still hidden. You don't see the red. People need to understand that the red doesn't even come out. There's a dose stage that when the melt comes out and the red's not even present, then the red on that last is the last thing that matures, but it's underneath the husk. So you don't even see the beauty um, of the corn until you're ready to pick it. And we, we grow enough acres. You're not going to go out there and hand break everything. So we're using a combine. So you don't get to see. So again, even when at Jimmy L, it looked all the same and, well, it was all the same. We just, until we put it through the combine and then we're like, we got this awesome seed. And then as soon as the combine starts rolling, it's all red. You're like, what? But like it crossed poly. We're like, no, we had it by itself. But yeah. It's just a recessive gene to it. So it was really cool to see the problem behind it. Um, and it doesn't. And then the question is just like you're asking is it makes me think, is that where the flavor profile comes? Is that 20% of yellow where the actual flavor comes from? Can we improve that? Like, I don't know. Those yeah. are all the questions that gets me excited. It's like, is that where the, is 80% of uh, the flavor side or is it the 20%? We don't know. Is it, it possible that yellow would turn red since you were saying it's the last thing to do? It just didn't reach that point. Well, no, they're all hard and off. So the uh. dent, the name dent, it says it all. So if you look at the tip, not touching the cob, but if you look at the top, it dents in it, physically dents. That tells you the dry, the moisture content is down. So I don't think it will change any more of that color profile in there. A flint corn does not do that. It's very small like popcorn. It's more heavy oil concentrate, and it doesn't have the softness. So the endosperm, the the uh, inside layer. And again, the nerd in me about milling is like we're looking at we want it hard enough to get as much grits out of it as possible. That's our cell. That's what people are getting from us. So every corn only gives me such a percentage of cornmeal and grits. I got tricks of cold to make it harder to, to, to make it get a little bit more grits. And we have equipment and different size stones and do things to make it heavier in the percentage I want, but the softness of the center, I can't fight. There's always going to be a percentage of cornmeal or corn flour that comes out of it. And, um, which is a good leeway into polenta, you know, having that Italian corn, like making real polenta. The, I want to tell people we interchange uh, hominy and grits here on the low country and hominy is not what grits are. But if you go back a generation, my mother-in-law that's still alive, like she's from here in Charleston, and people say, I want hominy grits. They just mean they want a bowl of grits. They don't want soaked in lye, uh, hominy um, and stuff. But polenta, the best way to explain people say, well, what is the word polenta? I was like, I, I got trained by Malia Milano out of Italy. We got samples and we got to learn how what real polenta was. And polenta is like saying what whole wheat bread is, is how I explained there by whole wheat means you get all parts of the wheat into that. Polenta is the same thing. It's it's not grits. It's not cornmeal. It's incorporating the entire, because they didn't want to waste anything. Cornbread recipes from the low country a long time ago, no one added flour because that was another product you had to buy. So cornbread recipes were thinner. The, the skillet cornbread didn't rise like Jiffy. And don't get me wrong, <laughs> I want to be honest and tell you all that as much as I love a skillet cornbread, there's a lot of me that loves a good Jiffy mix. <laughs> I mean, it's just, I, I, I got to be honest. You can't, you can't, you can't not, not love Jiffy. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's there's, good. <laughs> there's a good place in this world for Jiffy mix. So I, I'm, I'm not going to discredit Jiffy because I love it. So, <laughs> but, but polenta, polenta lends itself to understand the robustness and that it's, 
combining all, but there are different layers. And to get away from your question, but come back to it is, you know, I don't know if we've explored it enough, but it's exciting to know that there's still more that could be done to understand it. And it seems like what you, what you're talking about with, you know, having to grow multiple seasons, multiple years to work through you know, all the things you talk about, the loss and the, you know, everything that you, you have to experiment through you, whatever they would figure out in a lab, you're going to figure it out anyways, just by growing well, it and watching it do what it's going to do. I don't know. I think it's a different mindset. Just what you brought up has never been a mindset of mine to kind of think through some of the other things. I mean, Jimmy Yellow was like a revolutionary idea that took me uh, many years with my fall on other people kind of thinking it through mm-hmm. as we're hand shelling because we wanted just to keep that red color. And we're like, we got to get rid of this recessive gene and it, you don't need to get rid of it. But it makes me wonder now talking to you is like, where is that flavor profile coming from? Maybe it would be stronger if we if we got rid of that yellow uh, more often. Could we percentagely increase it or decrease it? Sure. And, and how would that help the strain? I will tell you that I've seen these ears on Jimmy Red set way too high, meaning they've been six, seven, eight feet. It's hard on a combine to get all the green matter being the stalk through to get to that. And like I said, hurricane season here on the coast. I'll tell you, I'm an upstate boy, and it's, it's worked on me hard. I've had just problems trying to process, you know, almost losing everything, house everything, you know, um, through the process. So it's it's difficult to to understand. But some of those traits I'd love to see fixed. But the lodging issue on these corns, meaning it blows down and it's too tall, I would love to fix some of those. I don't know if we can genetically fix some of that. And, you know, the exciting thing is that y'all know what Jimmy Red is. And I also will tell you, the more people know about a strain like that, the more opportunity it has to maybe get fixed and to get better. Sure. Um, but it also is important to me to try to keep the original flavor profile as much possible through the land race development and stuff of what it is. And then one of the ways you're mitigating the the loss through the land race deal is you're not, you're, you have farms everywhere. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 I wouldn't say farms everywhere, but growers, <laughs> we have, well, but we have growers because I've had to step away. It's, it's twofold. You know, it's an honor to be here and talk, but I can't be in all the locations and do it all myself anymore. And losing my father-in-law was the biggest problem to the equation because the knowledge he had, we, it's hilarious. So farmers are taking technology moving forward. I was asking him to remember what he did in 4-H. Well, there's not a lot of people I can now talk to, that have the passion and drive to talk about what they did in 4-H and keep going that direction instead of forward. And then you kind of inter, interlay some of the newer things. And I have to compliment him more than anybody because um, I had family members and people around me going, what a waste of time. Like, there's nothing there. And, like, he loved the experiment. He loved the passion behind it. And um, he drove us in so many ways and has continued to and and taught me so much. And I don't think a lot of people have – there's an age gap. His age gap finds it very difficult to take on those responsibilities. Funny story about that is um, back in the day when I was selling vegetables and in the back door to restaurants, um, um, chanterelles, mushrooms really took on. And um, he's running this massive commercial farm. I mean, we're talking thousands of workers he's responsible for picking tomatoes. And um, one day he sees me out there picking some chanterelles and I, um, we, we lived with them, um, together as a family, you know, start my business the only way we could afford to. And I'd get home and I'd have a little trash bag and of chanterelles. I take him to town and he, he's like, what a waste of time or whatever. And I, I don't think he said it that way, but anyways, I tell him how amazing, you know, 
$8 a pound, $15 a pound and all this stuff. And he's like, what? And, and, and then he's like, in his mind, over anybody I've ever met, that clicked for him. He's sitting there going, well, I take a lunch break. I know where I see some of those chanterelles. <laughs> yeah. So then in the next couple of days, he's he's walking up to me being like, here's a trash bag. I'm like, what? And he's like, take it to town and sell it for me. I was like, well, I can't legally say he's like, be quiet. Go sell my <laughs> mushrooms. But like, he got it. He got it. He could see. And, and generation between me and him didn't get it. They would be like, I'm a farmer. This is what I'm doing. I don't know the point of doing this. But like he he grasped it and he challenged me in a very good way and it was hilarious that um he could see the benefit um of some of these crazy ideas so it it became such a nourishing partner for us in that point but going back from there Matthew ruined me I mean it, it, even in my life with him we were two men um, sent our family away and. Um, Almost lost the house, almost lost everything. Most of the crops of mine were lost, and um, it was a real struggle. And what came out of that is you cannot put all your eggs in this basket. Like, I want to grow them for you, and I love this. And it was a, it was, it was keeping our family farm going. But he also was a smart enough man to tell me, you can't, you can't be everything anymore. And um, that was the start of us finding other like-minded farmers, which which is awesome to tell. There's so many little stories in here. So one of the farms that grew tomatoes um, was about ready to lose their farm before before me, Mr. Raymond, that owned the farm before my father's partner. And um, one year he said, "Okay, I'm going to let you grow my squash, zucchini, other stuff that I'm selling with the tomatoes," and it kept that family farm going. Well. Two generations later, the grandson is one of my main corn growers. So the same farm that saved the farm is now back together again. So it's a small community. They understand what we do. We understand what they do. And the connections that the farm has brought has started this really neat partnership. And then they can carve out 20 or 50 acres on a big farm. And that that 20 or 50 acres is a huge risk, but that that might be more profitable than the commodity crop they're growing. So we try to benefit them as much as benefit us, and we try to spread things out. Another quick cool thing is uh, we were growing upland rice, meaning growing Carolina gold and stuff in the low country on upland um, with irrigation and stuff instead of flooding traditionally. And I don't have a belief in terroir, in, in, and I might not be saying that word right, but in wine over the years of stressing plants, it creates a flavor profile. So if you go to the Pape region, they cut everything to the ground and it stresses the plant to go into lime aquifer layer. So it actually creates the flavor profile. And it's it, it's genetics, but it's also families for generations doing this. So mm-hmm. people are talking about corn and rice and I'm going, man, corn is a seasonal crop. You, you can't have these flavor profiles like that. And in a flavor secret, it got important. Well, rice we got uh, fortunate enough to meet a man in Georgetown that um, has a uh, farm that's been in continuous rice since 17, I think it's 53 or, uh, or, or so. So, you know, middle 1700s. What's important is through all the terrible things in society with keeping rice going, they didn't keep the rice going as a uh, production crop. They kept it as a hunting place. Like, uh, lady, Miss Pringle owned the place at the time. Mr. Quattlebaum owns it now. There's been many owners, but what's so cool is 
that with having rice in those soils all those years. But what's more important where terroir falls into me for rice is it falls into the peat, the soil. We can't reproduce the flooding and ebbing right. and flowing of what that does. But for the first time, I saw quality of rice like triple. And and I can't produce it in Charleston. So if you start looking into history of rice, it's like a it's it's terrible to say, but the ashy poo below us of Charleston and Edisto, and then um, above us into Georgetown, and Georgetown was the capital, but there was two freshwater sources coming down, and that is where you see, but the flavor was amazing difference, and I couldn't figure out what we were doing wrong. We weren't doing anything wrong. It was it was the peat soil. It was the ebbing and flowing, how they're doing the rice gates. It was how the water came in, and then they have problems we don't have, you know, so, and, and, Upland rice has been done for generations. People think it's some new practice and stuff. I have a friend in Maryland that's growing Carolina gold and stuff. So you can grow rice in other areas and stuff on Upland. But um, this last year, we had such a drought that people forget that the salt water came up and they couldn't flood. They were almost too late flooding. And the water source has to come almost down from Asheville. That's what people don't understand. It's even if we start getting rains here, it has to push all the salt down and stuff. So one funny uh, story a man told me is he said, who is the most important person on a rice farm? And I said, well, that's easy. It's got to be the owner. And he said, not at all. He said, it's the man that washes his hands. And I said, the man that washes his hands. And so if you go back into rice history, a lot of times the bugs and all were so good that the owner wasn't even around when the rice was harvested. So, so why was the man talking about history and talking about um, talking about um, chemistry? Why was the man that washed his hand or, or woman or whoever, why was that person the most important person? Well, by washing their hands at the floodgate, they could see the soap suds. Soap suds will tell you how much salinity, how much salt is in the water. So that person that declared what water went into the rice saved the crop or ruined the crop. So there was no chemistry lab to call and ask them to check how much salinity was in the water, but a bar of soap with the right experience can do the same thing. So I, I find that amazing, but that's also kind of the logic in which we kind of do this stuff. We go back to basics and kind of, yeah, Clemson and so much is there to help us, but it's really cool. But it's it's flavor. It's history showing us that things can be done. And then the men and women that already had it figured out, we just got to re-listen to them again. I don't. I didn't knew that about the. For some reason, I thought the floodgates opened at high tide and closed at low tide. But that, I don't. That's not the case. If you're no, trying to keep I'm, salt out of it. No, I mean it's 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 when to flood and hold it in. So flooding was done for two reasons, and people overlook it. One was for my arch enemy, the bobolink, which I wear on my arm proudly because the bobolink, uh, as a tattoo, was known as the rice bird. It, it would steal the seeds. So the first flood was typically done in migra- migratory patterns to keep the seed in the ground so the crop would grow. The second or second and third floods were done to control weed uh, control. By flooding, the rice can survive in the fresh water and stay above, but the all the all the weeds would die. And so you're not flooding in and out; it's holding in. But what people don't know is you're laser planting the field. You got to and 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 this was done without modern equipment and right, lasers. Yeah. But they they kept it so you can't have a low spot. So when you pull the water out, it doesn't drown and stuff. So it is it is um a completely different thing and and it's very new to me in the scheme of heirloom grains and it's it's an amazing crop and the stories are amazing to go with it but the flavor and the history uh is even better just to know what it did for this uh region and 
it was the largest crop at one time and how it was exported larger. Georgetown was the largest exporting and richest county at one time just because of rice. Um, but the flavor going back, I finally had a chance to see it in the local soils and it blew my mind. It just changed the whole flavor profile of how amazing that crop can be. Wow. So I have an interesting story. My aunt, uh, aunt, aunt, however you want to say it, um, inherited a rice farm in Louisiana. All my family's from Southwest Louisiana. And, uh, she has a book that, uh, she wouldn't let me look at too long because it's, it's very fragile, but it's, it's a book that her grant, her, her dad and her grandfather kept and it's notes for the seasons. Um, and your know, hand kept notes of the weather conditions from the previous year, how, you know, and with those notes to this day, um, even with all the technology that, that you can, you, you can use and take advantage of, uh, she can look back through that, that book and those notes and look at the, you know, the patterns for the previous year and, and what's going on with weather and certain things now. And based on previous notes, estimate very accurately how that season is going to go, um, for both the rice. And then after this rice season, they flood those fields and, uh, they farm crawfish down there. Um, but it's just fascinating what was done so effectively and efficiently so long ago with, without all the technology that we have today. Um, but I really, I really have been wanting to say this for a while now, the parallels between growing and figuring out what you're going to do with, with, with heirloom crops and, and, the process is very similar to distilling and creating bourbon and the patience it takes and having to wait three, four years only to find out, well, shit, it's, this isn't going to work or this doesn't taste good or for, for the sake of bourbon, you know, it just tastes like shit. This is not going to work. Um, and it goes hand in hand, you know, the, the, the patience and the time you put in, you know, whether it's, it's managing a farm for deer or whitetail or, or growing, um, you know, heirloom grains and, and, vegetables or whatever you're growing. Uh, it's just fascinating. I, I had no idea how much went into growing corn. It's like all of this stuff is like the salt of the earth stuff. It's like being able to hunt, being able to distill, being able to grow grains. It's like it, it, a lot of it's forget, forgotten technology. They talk about it in hunting all the time. Like we're basically reinventing the bow and arrow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. But they, 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 we don't know how to use it, but, <laughs> but they had it figured out, you know, 300 years ago. And, and that's what I tell people. I'm holding hands with generations before. I got one quick story on that, but I think it's important to say what y'all are talking about is um, when we start these Jimmy Red uh, um, ideas or other crops and add it in our rotation, the thing is, is you got six or seven going on at the same time. So when you start this project, isn't is part of your life, but you don't sit there and watch that um, um, 20 foot row every second of your day. So it's like when you talk about um, projects, it's crazy to think how long we've waited in one aspect on some of it, but it's just like another little aspect of what you do. So you, you kind of start forgetting um, you start forgetting that you've worked at it that long, you know, on our bag, it says we revived one in 2010 or something. I was like, Oh, is that when, you know, I just, I start to forget, um, some of that. And and it's just a thought process that you hear. So, um, we heard the coolest thing that we're working on right now, or one of them, and it's in its a multi-year process. And it might be just what you're talking about, about flavor might not be there is, when rice was moved from here 
as the new world back, they put it in barrels, they put it on, and this ties in the bourbon all they they put it in barrels. They and that was the shipping at the point. They didn't use um, super sacks or bulk bags that those didn't exist. Barrels were a common way of shipping. They're round, they're big, they're heavy. That seems like a terrible thing, but guess what? That's what they had. So um, they're easy to move, though. Right. So so rice was moved back over to Europe in barrels. Well, what's interesting that people don't know is so you're using a used barrel. What else are you doing? So number two, rice has to sit on those boats, go through different um, ebbs and flows, has to go through different humidity. So that's changing the product because the barrel's open. So the barrel has a flavor profile. The Opening it up with different humidities and temperature changes the flavor profile. Then they figured out laurel, bay laurel, is a wild uh, crop here in the low country area. And what does bay do? Bay dried keeps bugs out of products. So weevil, other things that hurts grain. So they would layer bay into barrels and ship rice over. How long was it on the ship? Don't know. How long was it a ship lane? Don't know. So... Uh, we are we are redoing uh, rice transport without transporting it, meaning I'm putting rice into barrels with different amounts of bay and different barrels uh, that were used barrels from different distilleries. And we have it in different climate controls and we rotate the barrels in different coolers. I have them at distilleries and breweries. And we're going to see what the flavor profile turns out. That's cool. Because bay, bay is such a strong, and it kept the bugs out well. I'm not keeping bugs out, but I already know I'm changing the flavor profile. Well, then if you go from wine barrel to a bourbon barrel and how kind of dry or wet it is and how it opens up, again, that changes the flavor profile too. So there was – what is all that based off of? There is writing about how it was prized by hierarchy. It was prized by kings and queens or however you want to state it on how the flavor profile was the best rice they ever had. Well – to be honest, that's not the same Carolina gold we had here yeah. because we just entered a barrel. We mm-hmm. just entered humidity. We just entered bay laurel. We just entered time. So I don't know what that equation is. So we that's where this comes from. That's the excitement. So I read it, and it's like, okay, well, we can recreate it. How long is it going to be? I have no idea. I've got stuff in the barrels from six months up to a year, and we're going to continue to rotate barrels out and put some in and see – what the uh, if if but I, from what y'all understand about bourbons and all, you should understand real quick what we're up to here, and it's yeah. it's pretty freaking awesome yeah. to see that there's a potential of creating this amazing, um, you know, potpourri rice that no one's ever had before. Have you tried it yet? No, I have not. I hope it's good. Man, I can't wait. It's going to be expensive I, rice, though. Yeah, well, it is because of the time sensitivity right. and but. We have the right resources to start it whenever we find the right barrel to the right chef to do the dinner to talk about the process. You know, um, that's a pairing dinner for us right there, mm-hmm. right? With Millers, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, you talk about like um, who was it, Jefferson Reserve or something? They put a barrel on and took it around the world, yeah. mm-hmm. and and people have taken barrels and put them under water. You know, for so long. Isn't that right? They blast yeah. them in front of speakers with music and with like so, ACDC. They do all kinds of crazy so things. They might ACDC. I don't know if I have a belief that it changes the <laughs> it flavor doesn't. profile. But <laughs> Big it, shocker. But <laughs> I, I do have a belief that the right barrel, the right amount of air, the right temperature, and bay will definitely change. Now, 
just to tell the listeners, rice that we're putting in is still in the hull, H-U-L-L. It's a word I've never been able to say properly, but the hull is the protective coat. So they didn't ship rice unprotected. So we still will have to take the rice and then haul it out. So the question is, is um, how much of that flavor actually got to the rice? Yeah. You know, how thick is a hull? Tiny. It, it's thin, but then you have to understand, too, that most rice aren't left brown. They're polished. Um Nothing in history tells me when the royalty accepted it, if it was brown rice, how the hall was, how long it was in the hall. I mean, I'd love to tell you that there was this perfect thing, but all I have is a quick notation saying that royalty prized the Carolina rice from coming from the new world. Well, then all we have based off is how it was shipped. So that's, that's, that's the fun part of the equation. Hmm. And, it's been an ongoing. Um, I've got a guy that does uh, Bard is kind of my lead rice person as far as um, just doing all the um, hauling and stuff. And the two of us have just bought some Cooper tools and been talking to different distilleries and places. And they've just been like, as soon as I tell them the story, like, here, go in our yeah. warehouse, <laughs> go get whatever you want. And I went up to Willet and did that. It was so much fun. Drew was so awesome. And he's like, all right, this is a brand new wet barrel. This is a such and such barrel. And and we just labeled the barrels and we just, you know, put up and it is a lot of, uh, kind of financial problem on my part to do, but man, if it comes out and I figure this thing out, it's like a bourbon. It's if, if I, if I can pull one in three years and five years and it's like, that's it. And then we, then we know the direction to go. Yeah. That's exciting. I didn't think we were, I didn't know we could talk about barrels. It's like one of our favorite yeah, things. We, we love barrels. We, that's what I mean. We make our stuff out of barrels, you know, so we, yeah. uh, we were talking about earlier. Um, so, yeah, we have some Cooper tools and we bust hoops off and break down barrels and play with them and make fun of bung holes and, you know, everything else. <laughs> well, I mean, my, our concern is, is if the barrels are too wet, I'd be, I might be molding all this. Yeah. I, mean, I might be ruining all this stuff. I might already be too far over the window of, of flavor. Uh, I might have already ruined the crop. Or is there a percentage on the outside that I have to pull away from the inside of the barrel? All these are things that we we don't know. We're, are we're, they rotating the barrels in storage? We are. Okay. Because that'd be the only variable I could see. Well, I mean, again, you know, the protective layer of that rice, we think we still should be good, but we don't know. I mean, yeah. it's, and then we did barrels with fresh bay as much as dried bay because we don't know. How they mm-hmm. did it. How we did it. I'm worried that the fresh bay is going to ruin, but the dried, I don't know if it's too strong. It's it's like it's like a fresh tea when you get to the dried bay and stuff. So it's two totally different products, and it's a totally different flavor uh, profile than the barrel. And some of the barrels have such a dramatic, strong, strong. And I'm yeah. like, I wonder if that. And then what size barrel? So the reason I said it is, is like, is it just going to be on the outside 20% where it's touching or where the air is? Is is the flow in the center not got enough air, you know, and, and did we overfill the barrels? Like how much how much air or rotation do you need for that rice? Does it need to fully rotate so often? In, you know, all these are. Um, I'd imagine if I was living back then and doing this, I would want to fill the barrels to the top and I wouldn't be concerned. I wouldn't even think about the well, they rocking. Would, yeah, they wouldn't have. They would have just. They would have just closed and had them. I mean, time is money and, and full is money. So they were going to yeah. have them as full as, yeah, we thought the same thing. But again, they weren't creating a new flavor profile. They were just, yeah. they were just, just carrying shipping. it. So 
what which is hilarious because you know we also don't know the the water that it was cooked in and what they thought was the perfect I mean, there could have been something put in rice at that point in history that was very important in in their in their way of how they cook that we're not doing. It was it wasn't cooked over an open fire. They got yeah. some smoke to it. Like you just start adding all these other variables. And so being a farmer is not that you are playing God, but the idea is to control as many variables as possible to make it repeatable as possible. Mm-hmm. So that's 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 where this experiment comes. And that's where most of the experiments of what we do come is what variables can we control to make sure that this is kind of constant over time. The bad variable is whether I can't control. And if the, if the production doesn't keep up with the demand, it's very difficult to keep um, and convince growers and people to pay what it is for the time we put into the crops. So since we're talking about rice and I eat a lot of it, and I've, <laughs> the wife has perfected a method of cooking rice. But before I say it, I wanted to ask you, if, if you, you know in the composition of it and how it's done and all that, is there a per- preferred, like, use bone broth instead of water? Do you put seasoning in it while it's cooking? Well, I, I think only one thing at the end impresses me about early rice recipes, which I'll say, but... On the cooking process, um, they actually make rice cookers out of Japan that look just like, you can buy them on Amazon, just similar to a, uh, uh, not a crock pot, but one of the instant instant pots. But there are rice cookers now, and I've gone into, without naming names, some very nice restaurants that are using them that you can purchase off Amazon. And I own one myself, and it blows me away that you can, like, literally they say jasmine or or like an aromatic rice, they say brown rice, white rice, and they cook perfect every time and they hold perfect every time. And it's learning how to make grams of water, which I had to have a chef show me, you know, I was like, convert your grams to a man that doesn't know how to cook. But the only step on Carolina gold, because Carolina was the original parent crop to Charleston, Carolina is very sticky by nature. And, um, what I find very interesting is the early recipes, just like I, how I said how cornbread doesn't have flour, an early recipe on Charleston always the the term fork tender plays in here because uh, what we're talking about is it tells you to lay it out on a pan to dry it out and turn with a fork. And I think that the stickiness of that crop in drying it out, fluffing it and drying it out is probably one of the most important things. And a lot of people are like, well, that's not what I do. But if you read early recipes, I find that the most intriguing thing on uh, that. Grits, there's always going to be a a cream, a stock, and a water person in what variable and how they do. And I think rice falls in that same suit. Stock makes things very rich, and I think it's kind of what you are. I, as a miller used to be grower will tell you that what I want to do is I want to taste the hard work that the people put in before me. Absolutely. So for me, all my recipes are going to be very basic and dry and dull to you. I'm not going to add a lot of salt or sugar or butter or anything to compensate away from the one thing I want to do is I want to taste the product. So sometimes I'm a little bit more bland than the average person. Um, and I think that's my problem, but I do think that the last step before you tell me about your wife's is just that I find it very interesting that uh, fluffing or or they talk about pans with wax paper now and just uh, taking it fork and turning it. I think that the um, that last step, it's like resting a really good piece of meat. I think 
um, uh, me as a man gets lazy and I'm like, man, I'm not waiting. I'm, I'm hungry. I'm going to eat it. But then if you have a rested piece of meat, it's like, holy geez. Well, I think, I think rice is the same thing. I think if it's just rested and it's turned like that, I think it, it turns out unbelievable. I'll have to add that to the step. She does a lot of rinsing, rinsing, washing, oh, rinsing, uh, washing, rinsing, yeah, washing. I, I guess I should have said that. And I, I definitely think that is very important. Um, Until it's clear, right? Yeah. So grits, Miss Emily Maggot, true story. Um, she took the hardest uh, grits to cook and took the time and a third, but her time preparing was three times longer. And what she was doing is she was rinsing, rinsing, and then she'd pull off the heavy shaft off the, off the surface. And it, we call it pins. Pins is the point of the corn where it touches the cob and, and you could have little microscopic piece of cob attached to that point. Well, what's interesting is that's where the bitterness occurs. So hers had this unbelievable favor, flavor because she took out the bitterness. But more importantly, that is the hardest piece to cook. So by her taking all the time to skim and rinse and get it off, then the cooking time increased a lot. And I've never seen a lot of people do mm. that step in the way she does. I see people skim as it's cooking a little bit off the surface. No, no, no. She, she sits with a colander for 15 minutes and is rinsing and scooping up top and she'll lose up to almost a third of her starting product. But the flavor profile is totally different and the end product's totally different because the bitterness is gone because the pins are gone. And huh. it's the only person I've ever seen do it. And it, did she know she was doing it? No, it was just a process that the, when she worked was told that's what she had to do. And mm -hmm. so it was a, it was a non-communal thing for me to see. And then it made me realize, okay, the cook time just increased and the flavor changed. Why did it change? And I finally figured out what was different. Do I do it that way? No, because I'm lazy, but like, <laughs> I, I love, I love to go over when she cooks. Um, and she doesn't cook as much because she's 90 years old, but it's exciting to have that memory and taste it with her. Well, that's awesome, Greg. We appreciate you coming on here and talking about Marsha and Mel. I want to do this again. It's a good conversation. I think we have a lot to still cover. But yeah, man. Well, I appreciate it. And next time we'll have to hit it. Um, Miller's all day. I'm my last name's not Miller, but I uh met a partner and chef that challenged me for years and we started Miller's all day. It's a little brunch spot and it's a chance to get local foodways centered around some of the heirloom grains we do and have brunch all day. And um, it's a good starting point. Maybe next time we can kind of bridge into kind of the exciting world that I will tell you, I got two children I love, and I feel like I got 90 children I don't love. But <laughs> I mean that out of, out of not knowing the restaurant business, and I didn't know what it took. And I thought I had a lot more knowledge of talking to chefs, but I'll tell you, that world rocked my world in a good and bad way of time and problems. And uh, I got a lot, a lot. And the main thing y'all need to hear there is I got a lot of respect for everybody in the food industry because the stress level and what's expected by the general public, I had no idea um, what people go through. And and we all got personal problems in our own life that, you know, you don't have a chance to even deal with when you're expected to do so much. But um, it's been a very hard, rewarding part of my uh, life to start learning. But it's also challenged me even more on keeping these foodways alive and learning a little bit more. So I appreciate y'all's time and look forward to some more. We want to do a whole episode on Miller's. With, we'll bring Chef in here as well. And I don't know if we want to bring him in. <laughs> no, no. It, Everybody that follows us knows we love some Miller's. We're always uh, yeah. always trying to eat there. We take people there. We recommend people to go there. It's We, we do supper club there. It's, it's a great time. Well. Seawee has an amazing game menu going on, too, and this podcast will probably air after it. But I'm I'm excited for people to have our little spin with our passion to not just do brunch food, but, you know, 
have quail and grits, have a little bit of boar, have mm-hmm. a little buffalo, you know, other things. Some uh, I think he's doing some duck wings. So excited for people to see the response on, you know, getting some of the flavors of the game in there. Because if you love a good chicken thigh, I love a quail 10 times more. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm excited for, I hope people to enjoy and see some of that process of another part of the passion I love. Same. I'm excited for it. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. This has been a Seaweed Spotlight. Thank you to Seaweed for making this happen and all the support that we're getting from everybody on that team. Thanks again, Greg. Anytime. Have a great day. All right.